So, I mean, just going through smart, dead, literary people. So whether it's like writers, philosophers, etc., and just reading them carefully, I actually think you get a better education than almost any other manner. I'm your host, Hannah Frankman. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Jonathan Anomaly. Johnny is the former head of the politics, philosophy, and economics department at the University of Pennsylvania, where he got canceled and is now leaving academia to work at a stealth startup. In today's episode, we talk about Johnny's experience doing teaching training at Columbia and what he learned about the state of education training while he was there. We talk about his experience in academia and the ideological takeover that's been happening in the university system over the past decade and some of the secondary and tertiary effects of that takeover, not just in education and academics, but in society at large. We talk about the importance of philosophy and rationality and critical thinking and how to develop those things, not just in kids, but also in intellectually curious adults. And... We talk about how some of the things that are happening in the university system can be avoided by pursuing intellectual pursuits and curiosities on your own and some of the places that you might want to start. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation and I'm excited for you to dig in. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Anna. I'm so excited to have you here. There's a lot that I want to talk about. But first, I want to give a little bit of context for why I'm excited to have this conversation. Okay. Um, because you have a very interesting background. You've been an academic for 15 years. Is that right? Yeah, Something like that? Yeah. Okay. Um, you were a lecturer at Duke University for years. Then you were the head of the PPE department at UPenn. Yeah. Um, where you got canceled, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, you're leaving academia now. But you've had, not only were you a philosopher, but you also had a background. You originally were going to be a high school teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different avenues of education that I'm excited to talk about in this interview. Um, Let's talk about your experience first before you got your PhD studying to be a teacher. What were you going to teach? I've never asked you. Yeah, good question. Um... Yeah, I grew up in California and went to school in Berkeley. And so you have to teach what is teachable. I liked studying philosophy and economics, um, along with lots of other things. But you don't, you don't teach or study philosophy in high school in California. So I was forced to choose like generically social science, history, um, something like that. So I just chose history as, as a track. So when you're taking your your high school teaching exam, you have to choose one of those kinds of subjects. So that's what I chose. But as we've talked about, um, as soon as I took the the teaching test, the CBEST as they call it in California, I realized this probably wasn't the right career for me because it was so it was so easy and so poorly written that I just thought, okay, like this this already is an indicator that these public high schools aren't sort of up to par. But what do you mean it was poorly written? Oh, the te- like imagine taking a DMV test. You've, you've probably, mm-hmm. you're from the Northeast. So I don't know, maybe they're better there, but. Uh, n- no, yeah. they're pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. When you take a DMV test, I mean, instead of gauging like how good of a driver you are, I mean, there is the driving component where mm-hmm. they can kind of gauge that. You know, can you turn? Can you? you <laughs> yes, yeah, it's pretty basic. Yeah. But um, right. So that's part of it is it's almost like too basic. But the mm-hmm. other part is, I remember taking the DMV test in California and it's like, 
Um, when you see train tracks, can you do you have to stop? You know, fourteen point five feet in front of them, or fifteen point seven feet? And the correct answer is, who gives a shit? Like, like, <laughs> I mean, just like stop in front of the tracks so the train doesn't hit you, right? Yeah. But they would just ask the most pointless, not just easy, but ridiculous questions. And um, yeah, it just gave me a sense of already what the bureaucracy was like. And I think I told you before that being in line with people to take this test, several of whom had repeatedly failed it and failed it so many times that they were worried about losing their job, didn't give me a lot of confidence in the in the profession. No, that, that wouldn't inspire yeah. confidence in me either. But you took the test before you went to get a master's in education, right? So you still were going to be a teacher? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and you do that because I thought at first you can do these so-called crash credentials. So if you want to teach in the inner city or the schools that nobody wants to teach in, like they'll certify you, you know, quicker, you know, more quickly anyway, and you can start that summer, but then you still eventually have to earn some kind of certificate or a master's degree or whatever. And so that that was my original idea. Just do that. And what was, so you went to, you went to get a master's at Columbia, which is Mm -hmm. one of the best schools in the country for studying education. Most things. Yeah. (laughs) What was that like? Yeah, that was, that was a a red pill, I guess, as we (laughs) might say. So an inadvertent one. Yeah, the classes were like so easy and so non-demanding that I was confused. Um, we didn't expect, you know, teacher training to be, you know, as demanding as a physics class or something. But I expected, I don't know, you'd learn something about pedagogy, like what works in the classroom. Something pretty practical. There was none of that. Essentially, it was educational theory, where theory is kind of left-wing propaganda, you know, so focusing on certain groups because they're historically, you know, they've been discriminated against. Nothing wrong with that in principle, but you can imagine, given what's happened over the last sort of five to 10 years, what that looks like in practice, the kind of things that you see in DEI offices, which didn't exist back then, right? So what, like, what were you actually equipped to do, practically speaking, when you, nothing? Nothing. I mean, there, there was really no, and it, I mean, this is, I think a common experience. I mean, I could be wrong, but I've read a little bit about it. I'm not an expert in, you know, what ed schools look like, but I went to one and and I've read a little bit about them. I think it's not uncommon to learn very little about either the subject you're teaching or pedagogy. There is typically like a class where, you know, the job of that class is to put you in another classroom and have a teacher mentor and that sort of thing. But other than that, it's mostly ideology. It's mostly a waste of time. Um, and I know that sounds cynical, but but um, that's that's my experience. That's what it looks like. So, so yeah. the average person who's coming out of a teacher's college has basically learned nothing about actually, based on your experience, has basically learned yeah, nothing exactly. about how to actually effectively teach yeah. kids. I can't generalize to all the schools, but yeah, that, you that's my experience. One. Yeah, from a, a so-called good one. That's yeah. exactly right. That's that's my experience. But you know, and and from a theoretical standpoint, I mean. You know, what, what economists like to say is these are essentially barriers to entry. And what they're not saying when they say these are barriers to entry, these are like two-year certificates, you know, they're costly barriers. Is there some kind of conspiracy? There may be, but it's probably not a conspiracy, but rather just these emerge in such a way where originally maybe there was a program to train people how to teach pedagogy. And then it became more expensive and longer it acquired a new mission, which is sort of an ideological filter. And in effect, what it does is it punishes people who 
just want to be good teachers from ever entering that profession. They have to pay money plus two years of time and then go through the ideological filter and who's willing to do that. And it turns out like not the best and the brightest. So I think the ultimate sin of the ed schools, and this is not my experiential point, but the theoretical point is just erecting these massive barriers to entry to young, talented people who might use their energy to teach and instead they go work for Goldman Sachs. Well, it also creates this very artificial intellectual barrier around who is and is not qualified to teach people things yeah. because it makes it seem like if you're not trained in a college of education, who are you to be standing yeah. in front of kids teaching them something? Right. And there's this weird phenomenon where like, Parents don't feel qualified to teach their kids anything, even though the things that their kids are learning in school are really not that hard to beat. I was talking to somebody on Twitter today, a mom who was like, I have two kids with dyslexia and they were reading below grade level when they were in school and I pulled them out and now they're 12 and 14 and reading at college level beyond being dyslexic. Like the idea that <laughs> your kids are in school right. and you can't do this stuff at home is ridiculous. But so many people just assume yeah. Well, these are the, the the institutions that are, you know, the experts. Therefore, I can't right. do this on my own. Right. Um, which I think is also really harmful because there are so many people who have so much knowledge to share with kids, and they just are like, "Well, I don't have a teaching certificate, so who am I to? Right. <laughs> who am so I to pretend I can I'm teach a mom?" Something? And me attempting to my ke- teach my kids is somehow worse than some other mom of another kid that I give it to because. Yeah, she has some kind of a certificate. Yeah, it's a little bit absurd. It's a little bit like the thought that those who say they want to abolish the Department of Education, that they're against education or something like that, right? Which is sort of... We're really not. The wrong point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not at all what we mean. Yeah. So what about... So you decided after being at Columbia that you didn't want to be... An educator, is that what did you in or what made you decide? No, it to- wasn't just that. I mean, it was also, I, I was taking other classes at Columbia. So, you know, I started taking philosophy classes, like grad level seminars and doing well in them and, you know, realizing I want to be a scholar, not just, not just a teacher of whatever I'm forced to teach. So, yeah. So then you went and got a PhD and went into yep. academia. Exactly. Yeah. And what you were in, you had a very interesting era to be an academic. Yeah. A lot is changed in the time like I would imagine since when you started and when you're now leaving, the, the climate is very different than it was before tell me a little bit about that yes it's, it's such a great climate now um <laughs> yeah it's funny yeah having gone to school in Berkeley and even even in California when you arrive on campus in Berkeley and this is late 90s for me um you know you realize as you've heard of course it's like far left and Every single day there are protests. And when I say that, it's not an exaggeration. Sometimes there are three, four, five protests in a day. And on any issue you can imagine, right? Whether it's like nudist rights, which I'm I'm pretty cool with actually. You know, <laughs> pretty libertarian. Or, or, You're like, yeah, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to do. <laughs> you know, or, or something more substantive. But you know, they they first of all, what you learn in a in an environment like that is that people are doing this because it's fun, right? They're not, there's not some master plan like, okay, there's this new bill that's introduced and we're really after protesting that bill. It's like, no, protesting is a kind of sport, right? Like people clearly have it in their psychology. They want to fight for something. It doesn't really matter what it's for. But, you know, that was kind of fun and an interesting experience. And, and um, if anything, it alienated me from the left, um, whereas I went in pretty left wing. 
But now we're all at Berkeley. I mean, that's the interesting thing is like, okay, Berkeley was always that weird, far left place, you know, from, you know, it starts as free speech in the 60s, but it really moves really far to the left to the point where Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California in the 70s, had to break up, you know, riots and protests and crack down on these guys. So it went from like, you know, the sort of free speech anti-Vietnam to um, essentially just yeah, like anarchists and then drug dealers and just just all kinds of you know, homeless people all over campus. It just became this kind of bizarre, but famously left wing place. And yeah, in the in the twenty years since since I was there as a student to like the end of my academic career, like I would basically say everywhere is Berkeley now. Which yeah, that's been that's been the shock. How, how quickly the ideology has spread from a few localized places to just everywhere. What so, happened? Well, good question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not an expert on this, but... Um, In your opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would cite people like Eric Kaufman, and um, hopefully you'll have on Phil Magnus on the show. Um, Phil Magnus more recently. And Eric Kaufman, in his, his study, Academic Freedom in Crisis, has a number of really interesting graphs showing... Um, the, for example, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans and um, the willingness to tolerate, for example, free speech or ideas you disagree with, and that varying in large part with the ratios changing. So he shows the ratios changing really beginning in the 60s, no surprise. But you go from things like two to one Democrat to Republican to five to one to, you know, a place where we are now where it's 20 to 1, 50 to 1, depending on what department you're in. And at that point, you realize, yeah, there's no diversity left. And the, the little diversity there is, you know, those people kind of keep their mouths shut. And so I actually think, uh, yeah, there's some idea this long march through the institutions. Yeah, some radical communists really did have a plan to invade the institutions and it worked. But I think that's a small minority. I think most of it is an emergent order. It's unplanned. It's the kind of thing where when it's three to one, five to one, seven to one, um, where your colleagues are all agreeing with each other and slowly you become a smaller and smaller minority. I mean, you just don't have voting power when you're trying to select graduate students, hire faculty, promote faculty, decide which projects are worth pursuing. Um, and when you think about this, it's not just those decisions, which are a lot. It's like, what do academics do? They apply for grants to fund research, right? Even, even social scientists need money for research. It's not very good compared to, you know, the natural sciences, but it, it happens. And, and how do you promote your career? Well, you publish and, and that sort of thing. Well, when you have these kinds of ratios, who sits on the boards that allocate the money, right? Obviously, it's, it's you and your, your colleagues. And so what ends up happening is not only that, when you get those ratios more and more skewed, it skews the teaching, it skews the hiring, the selection of the grad students, which become the future faculty. It also skews every aspect of the profession, every bit of research, whether you can get money or not, et cetera. And so when you think about the reverberating effects of that, once you hit a threshold, um, it's basically impossible to have the academy be a fair place of free inquiry. So yeah, I think what happens is you've got this, you've got this emergent order you get this divergence between political ideologies and the more skewed it gets, the more irreversible it is. And at this point, yeah, I said, it just can't be saved in my opinion. So, uh, sorry, before we go into, 
too deep a territory there. I mean, for example, the, the social sciences and humanities, like they're not just going to turn around in five years. It's not like, well, the pendulum swung pretty far and, you know, it's going to come right back. No, that's, that's not possible because all of those trends are locked in through tenure and through this whole emergent process, right? Unless everyone just changes their minds tomorrow or next year about their ideology, there's really not like, like a simple fix. So. so then what happens to the social sciences? They become discredited and I think they're worth discrediting um, for the most part. That's not, you know, we have to make fine distinctions. Sociology is much worse than economics. Economics is probably the best social science. It's pretty impartial. It's only five to one Democrat to Republican, right? So, you know, you can still... Only. Yeah, it's only that. So. <laughs> so what do you mean by being discredited? You mean by like the population at large, we just sort of stop caring about what's coming out of these departments yes. or what, what happens? Yeah, and we already have for the most part. So like if you think about, you know, I know this is a bit demeaning, but we call them the grievance studies departments, right? So the, anything with the word studies after it. I never heard to, that before. Oh, you have it. Okay. Yeah. So, so here's something, <laughs> right? Like you might want to major in one of the sciences, like chemistry, physics, whatever, right? Yeah. But then there's something at many universities called science studies. Like that exists. But what is science studies? Well, it's like basically an approach to science where you try to delegitimize science mm -hmm. by showing that it's like a product of, I don't know, racial oppression or whatever. And, and, and typically when you have the word studies, there are exceptions, but the word studies after an academic subject name is almost always a bad sign. So you can think of like gender studies, black studies, Chicano studies, Jewish studies, right? Like, okay, you should study like Jewish history or like Asian culture. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. That's completely normal. But as soon as it enters one of those fringe fields and they have their own journals, they have their own sort of way of doing things, their own language, it's almost always because it's like a far left kind of cult. And so when you think about the grievance studies departments, like when an academic feminist says with a serious face, there literally are no differences between men and women. It's all socially constructed everyone rolls their eyes. Like nobody actually takes that seriously. And when an economist talks, most people do, I think, still take it seriously and they should, yeah. but with a grain of salt because we know economics, like all the social sciences can be ideological. So my view is actually a pretty balanced one, which is it's not like all of them are totally discredited or should be, but they're discredited largely in proportion to how ideologically uh, perceived they are. So... Yeah. How much, like, how did this impact the course of your career as you were interacting with people, like your, your colleagues in these different universities while this change was occurring? Like, what was your yeah. personal experience with it? Not that bad until circa 2015. That's when things really got bad. And I mean, maybe that's me not, just not noticing or not publishing anything controversial until then. But I do think there was a bit of a sea change. So, you know, whatever we want to call this, the Great Awakening, my friend Bo Weingard has called it, um, you know, which occurs right around 2015, 2017. Um, some have traced this to around 2013 because of social media, not the usual boring things like, oh, we're all addicted to our phones, but rather the idea that both good and good ideas and bad ideas are spread much more rapidly, right? Once you have all these social media sites. So you get like, you get these bad ideas on campus from, for example, the grievance studies departments, right? Where we're talking about microaggressions and implicit bias. Oh, maybe you don't think you're racist. And, you know, 
you have lots of diverse friends, but in fact, you know, that's what a white supremacist would say, you know, these kinds of bizarre conspiratorial ways of thinking, which again, relegated to these fringe departments. Suddenly 2013, 2014, you see these ideas spread. And I think the best way to look at it is these New York Times engrams where you look at Google searches, New York Times, um, different stories where you can quantify how often does a certain term appear? Terms like white supremacy or implicit bias or microaggression. And you just see these like lines where it's kind of like this and then just, you know, in like 2013. So I don't know, there's like a confluence of probably explanations, not just social media, obviously, but for whatever reason, I started noticing around 2015, maybe 2014. And that's when it became a lot more difficult to even like make a joke in class where everyone understands your intentions and they interpret it appropriately. Whereas now people are like looking to like, oh, what if I write that down and turn it into a story, you know, write a headline about it. Oh, I'm going to fuck over my professor, you know. Um, yeah, so circa 2015, things, things started to change pretty radically in my view. But how... So I've... I've spent, we've talked a little bit about this. I've spent yeah. a lot of time working in this space of like building alternatives to college and, and paths beyond college. And I didn't go to college. I graduated from being homeschooled and I went yeah. straight into working in the startup world because that's what I was interested in. And for me, it didn't feel like very personally, it didn't feel terribly worth my time because I knew that all the things I was interested in, I could learn on my own. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do anything that required credentialing. So it was just going to be a big waste of time and money and energy. And for me personally, that was the right move. But I also feel like, you know, I've spent a lot of time also studying like, you know, what, what is the value of a college degree actually in the marketplace? Um, how useful is it for people to have or to not have? Do you feel for like from your perspective, especially with all the wokeism stuff that's happened on campuses, like how is that changing either the value of a degree or how people should think about whether or not they ought to be pursuing a degree in the first place? Good. Yeah, <clears throat> it has changed the value and, and, and of course the cost benefit analysis that students do. And and you should talk to Brian Kaplan about this, of course. He'll come to town soon. He's affiliated with the Salem Center. So his book, The Case Against Education, is, is a good one, a classic in this sort of area. Um, yeah, I think like it depends on what you're studying. So the, the real question is like, not should I go to college, but should I go to college given my goals? Like if you want to be a doctor, you should go to college, right? Partly because, well, you literally just need the credential. Like you can't practice medicine without it. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, a libertarian utopia wouldn't require that. True. <laughs> but we don't live in one of But those. we don't live in one of those. <laughs> so yeah, you, sh you should go to college, you know, and you study your, you know, study biology and all that. Um, but yeah, if you're going to study women's studies or something like that, I think it's not only that you're not going to learn anything, you're going to be indoctrinated. There's no doubt about that. But my view is you're probably now a net liability, viewed as a net liability to a company. So I think that if you come out of an Ivy League university and you chose to pay all that money, you got in somehow, you know, let's say you even deserve to get in, right? Because of your test scores or whatever. And you chose to major in sociology or women's studies. I think that, I could be wrong, but I think we're close to a point where a lot of employers are going to think like, what happened? Why did you do that? Um, I know Peter Thiel already does that. He doesn't ask, where did you go to college? But why? And if you don't have a good answer. 
Peter Thiel, of course, he's more of one of us. I mean, he's <laughs> he's sort of um, his own person. But I think more and more, you know, employers are doing that. And I've heard anecdotally, this is not statistics, but I have heard from some former students that I keep up with that, yeah, employers are worried now about the kind of person who goes to the company and, you know, likes to say how problematic things are. And nobody wants to work with that person. I mean, obviously, it's going to deter from your ability to make profits. So, so yeah, I think that um, there's still value in some degrees. And some people actually should go to college just because for their own, their own reasons. But it depends on what you, what you major in. What about the intellectual value of a degree, degree? Is that also declining? I think so. But again, if you're studying the natural sciences, no. But, you know, the, the social sciences, yes. And the humanities, absolutely. I think the worst thing you could do if you were interested in literature is major in literature. And what should you do if you're interested in literature? Don't go to college or go study chemistry, be a doctor and then read at night or something. <laughs> I okay. mean, that's what I did. I loved literature and there I just go. like read a lot and went and worked at startups. But <laughs> Yep. Actually, I, give you, I have a couple of funny anecdotes on that. So one from Penn, this was before I got there, but um, I mean, it was worse after I got there. Um, at one point, you can read about this, students tore down the poster of Shakespeare in the literature department because he's a white supremacist, right? Like, Wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is like, you know, why would we have Shakespeare representing literature? You know, but um, that's, you know, one funny little anecdote. I mean, those are a few brats, but like it does show you, you know, the, the sort of times we're living in. But the other funny one is when I was at Duke, I, I noticed there was this weird department called literature. Mm-hmm. And there, it was separate from the English department. I thought, well, why is this? Normally, these are just sort of together. And then you do world literature, English literature, whatever. And um, a friend of mine named Alex Rosenberg told me, oh, there's like a war 20 years ago in the English department. And basically, English, the people who were, wanted to be called the English department studied literature, English literature. And the literature people studied applications of Marxism, you know, debunking literature or debunking whatever, Western civilization. And so I would get these students who are literature majors and they were just using all the Marxist jargon. And I don't say that as like um, a term of derision. I mean, like literally that's what they were taught. Literature was Marxism. <laughs> and, um, you know, this isn't some like me in a moral panic, like, oh, the Marxists are taking over. That was like literally what the literature department was, like self-consciously a Marxist program at Duke. And then the English department split off from them. But then the English department got taken over by the wokes. And they started purging, you know, the non-leftists and so on. And so, yeah, the obvious advice is don't go to college. Well, that's generally my advice, but I also open, openly acknowledge that I have a little bit of an extreme personal sure. take on this. Like when I'm talking to an individual, right? obviously it depends on your goals and your interests and what it is you want to do with your life. Although the idea that you need to have an answer to that question at 18 is also a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a separate conversation. But also individually, when I'm normally talking to people, usually it feels to me like the conclusion is, no, this is kind of a waste of your time. In those areas, especially. Yeah. 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 But what, like with the, the wokeism that is taken over the university system, and the the lack of intellectual diversity, mm-hmm. which means you're kind of just in an echo chamber now of ideas and ideology. How does that impact both p- 
people's ability to get a rigorous education and become rigorous thinkers, but also like what are the secondary and tertiary effects of that? Because we can all say like, don't go to college, like just just skip it, not worth your time. But that doesn't mean we're not living in a world where universities still exist and the things that are coming out of universities are still affecting us because they, they are. Yep. Yeah, good question. Super scary too, because like as the internet is more and more controlled, whether it's, you know, Google search algorithms and Google owns YouTube and obviously all the other social media companies tightly controlling what information you have access to. It, yeah, you can imagine if you're growing up now, you're a teenager now, you know, what are you going to be exposed to in the next 10 years? Like versus even in 2015, before all the, the real crackdown started on the internet, you could go to college, get some of the indoctrination that was coming, and then watch a YouTube video of someone openly mocking and absolutely destroying every assumption you were being taught. And that was really happening. And there were a lot of headlines back then, like, you know, YouTube is turning teenage boys into alt-right, you know, fanboys or whatever. And and some of that was true, of course. Um, But they panicked and they basically decided, yeah, I mean, the the schools aren't going to be sufficient to indoctrinate people. Some aren't going to go to school. Others are going to see these other sources of information. So now we're going to shut those down. And so, um, yeah, my real worry is that there are going to be, there's going to be a generation of people who are almost incapable of thinking um, the thoughts that you're not supposed to think. And we can get into what some of those are, but um, it's, I think, probably difficult unless you have a certain personality. Like, you score high on sort of disagreeableness. And I don't mean you're a bad person. I mean, just the psychological trait of not giving a shit of what other people think. You know, like, I really just want to know what the truth is. Like, that's a small minority of people. It always will be, right? I mean, most people don't have an evolved disposition to be maximally open. You know, as Joseph Henrich and others have argued, like, we're the kind of creature that mostly evolved to look for a few successful people and copy them. Copy their behavior, copy their the way they dress, the way they talk, and the way they think. And that's how most people are. And so if all of the Hollywood celebrities and all of the professors and everyone that you might look up to thinks the same thing, like, I mean, you could technically go rooting around the internet and find some piece of counter evidence, but are you going to be psychologically disposed to believe it? Most people aren't. And so, you know, I think this is going to be super scary because whether we talk about voters, you know, being able to, you know, inform themselves properly or, you know, I think the bigger consequences, which is the second part of your question, you know, journalists, secondary school teachers, corporate board members, they're all absorbing this ideology. And, and it is a kind of ideological filter at this point. And given that there's less and less access to information that contravenes the ideology, and we can think of chat GPT and these other new technologies where we've got woke AI, you know, it'll still be technically possible to have different beliefs, but the huge majority of people are not inclined to formulate their thoughts that way. So yeah, it's scary. And it's also, it's scary for them too. There's a great, uh, the great Keynes quote, I'm going to butcher this a little bit because I don't yeah. remember the exact phrasing of it, but basically the idea is that it's it's safer to be wrong with the majority than it is to be right, but to be alone. And I think a lot of people, they're not disagreeable enough yeah. to to be willing to even, like it's, it's just not in our nature and that's fine. That's how we're designed, but it makes it very hard. What is, what is, so you said that it's possible that we could have 
an entire generation of people who aren't willing to think about the things that you're not supposed to. What is the antidote to that? Not not culturally, but on an individual level. Like if you want to raise a child who is bold enough to ask questions or follow their curiosities or you're a young adult or a fully fledged adult and you're like, you know, yeah. I really want to be like willing to think what what do you do? How do you train the mind outside of the parameters of what the, the very narrow subset of ideas that we're being told are acceptable? This is probably a question I should ask you, but I'll give you my answer and maybe you can give me yours. I mean, the first obvious thing is to model good behavior. I mean, kids do mostly look up to their parents, maybe not when they're 14, but you know, other than Depends that, on the kid. Yeah. And that, those brief years, but like, yeah, I mean, even 14 year olds sometimes do. And so obviously modeling that kind of behavior. And I think you can do that since they're a kid, actually, like when they ask for something and you say no, or you set barriers, I don't see a problem with explaining why there's barriers. And then if they keep trying to break them, then okay, you can just say, no, that's the rule, follow it. But like, there's always this weird resistance by a lot of parents I've noticed to explain why there are rules. But actually, like some kids kind of just do want to know because some rules are stupid. And, you know, if you're a smart kid or a curious kid, like it really is like a legitimate question. And so I actually think like from a young age, you could model that, not two maybe, but, you know, above seven or whatever. Um, so so that's one one clear answer. And then the other is like, yeah, nurturing and and designing the kind of education where they get to, where they get to follow their curiosity. And so, you know, being able to say like, I actually don't know the answer to that. that you know, I don't know a lot about that subject, but you should read more and I'm going to read some too. And let's like, let's talk about it. Um, that seems to me an appropriate way to, to model that kind of behavior where you have like epistemic humility, curiosity, and then potentially maybe you end up at a different conclusion than your own kid. And you're like, wait a minute, let's, let's have it out. It sounds weird to argue with your kid, like in a Socratic way, but like seems reasonable to me. It's really not odd though. It's important because you want your kids to be, you don't want your kids to just blindly listen to you. You want them to choose to listen to you because they respect you and they know that you can come up with cogent rationale for why they ought to do something or why something is the way that it is. Right. Um, And you're not doing them any favors either if you're just having them blindly follow you because you're doing the same thing that the education system is doing. And you can push back on this if you disagree, because I may also have stronger opinions about the education system at large than you do. But like you have Basically, in school, you're just told like the teacher, the authority figure has the right answer and you need to find that same right answer or you are wrong. And it's less important to understand why the answer is right than it is to know what the right answer is and to be able to repeat it back when asked. (laughs) And so you have you have you end up with kids who are just like learning how to follow the right answer, not how to like dissect, analyze, rationalize, disagree with if they so choose that answer. And so if you're just repeating the same behavior at home, you're creating the same outcome. Like they might agree with your right answers as opposed to the teacher's right answers. And those might be ideologically different, but you're still raising a kid who just is following what they're told instead of grappling with these ideas and being able to grapple with new ideas that they haven't encountered before and come to their own conclusions, which is really, really important as an adult to be able to do. 
And so like you want your kids to be challenging you, especially as they get older, especially as they get into middle school and high school, because they're almost adults now. Yep. And they're going to need to be able to do this once they enter the real world. So I'm a very big fan of having like wrestling with ideas with your kids and disagreeing with them. It's hard, but it's necessary if you want them to actually become thinking adults, not just automatons. Right. And to respect you for the right reasons rather than respect you because you're bigger and stronger and can beat them up. Right. <laughs> or take away their dinner or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. And the whole idea of, you know, you use the word right answer. And I think what you really meant was, well, I mean, because a lot of schools will teach you, quote, the answer, but it, it's actually not correct or it's, you know, certainly not justifiable. It's some, you know, in some cases it might be, you know, scientifically plausible, but turn out to be false. In other cases, it's purely ideological. But either way, yeah, if you're, if you're not free to try to justify why, you know, you've arrived at a certain answer, then that's kind of not knowledge. That's, that's, that's just a set of dogmas that are being sort of propounded. So, and I guess your view is that was the point of the public education system to begin with, wasn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. it was. It was intended to create a very certain type of person that would be useful to society at large, which people think is like a right-wing internet conspiracy, but then right. you go into the literature of the people who created the system and it's very explicit. They were not trying to hide this at all. We're like, we have all of these immigrants coming into this country and we don't know what to do with them. And we have this rapidly industrializing system that we need to make sure we have people who can come in and fill all of the spots. So we need to create a system that just like mass produces relatively interchangeable people who are relatively well-behaved enough and are like relatively skilled, but aren't thinking too hard about things because then they're not really useful for all these roles anymore. We just need a lot of those people produced consistently. We need like a yearly supply of them. Yeah. Um, so it really wasn't intended to challenge people to think that hard about things. And maybe it's no accident that public mass public schools, compulsory public schools really are a product, especially of, of America, um, of the United States, where you're assimilating large numbers of, as you said, like low skilled immigrants. Some of them don't have common values, mostly coming from Europe, but different parts of Europe and they don't all get along. Yeah. yeah. So, right. Traditional religious differences and so on. And so it's a, in a way, it's quite literally an assimilationist indoctrination program. That, that's the point. I mean, that is literally maybe, the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. A lot of early thinkers, even people on the left and socialists, like, well, John Stuart Mill is an interesting case because he's, I guess you'd call him a social democrat. Um, I don't think he'd get along with the modern social Democrats. Um, you know, he's not changed a little AOC voter or something. But you know, Mill Mill has this idea that probably the state should have some level of compulsory education. But what he meant by that is that the state should force parents, in the rare cases that are not willing to, to teach their children basic, you know, arithmetic, reading, that sort of thing. Why? Because well especially in a more advanced industrialized society like England, like the United States. I mean, there's some bare minimum that you need to just like have a job, right? You have to be able to read. You need literacy and things. And he thought that wouldn't really need to be enforced much, but like to the extent that it needs to be enforced, well, it should be. But he said, and, and Adam Smith said something clear, uh, a cert, um, sorry, similar. Um, even if the state takes, takes upon the role of enforcing universal education, it should never under any circumstances be the main provider of that education. And a lot of people these days, not you certainly, but like a lot of people make a confusion, which is 
you know, there's, you can see a kind of public goods aspect to education. Like if all of us are a little bit more literate, scientifically literate, better thinkers, that is a literal public good in the economic sense of the term. There are positive externalities. So if I'm around other smart, interesting, well-educated people, like we're all more productive. Well, we're sitting here in Austin and like, why do people come to Austin? Because it's great. <laughs> <laughs> part of it, yeah. Part because of there it. are people exactly. who are intelligent and interested yeah. in ideas who are here. Right. And so, so even Mill thought like, okay, if that's the goal, and maybe it is, you know, let's create like better citizens or whatever. The last way you would want to do that is through compulsory public education where there are government schools. And he said it would be a mere excuse for the government pushing the prevailing ideology. It's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we see. You're pretty libertarian. What do you think? Do you think that the government should enforce some level of education? They do now. It's, it varies on a state by state level, especially like the regulation around homeschoolers. Like I grew up in Pennsylvania where there were a lot of rules about like logging days and hours and all of yeah. those things. And there are some states like Alaska where they just don't care. They're like, yeah. it's your kid, do what you want. Um, I don't know. Do you have a take on what level of regulation yeah. there should be? My new take, like a meta take on politics in general is like abstract claims about stuff like this um, probably matter less than what kind of society we're living on. In So, so let me um, make a distinction like high trust, low trust. So let's say you live in Norway, country of 3 million, I think something like that. Extremely high trust, homogenous, people get along, very prosperous. In a situation like that, um, on the one hand, it's easier to say, you know, if there's some social goal we mostly agree on, like, let's have the government do it. It's, it's not only um, less controversial because if the government says you should do it, most people will just follow what the government does because they all trust each other and we're all in this together. But it's also true that paradoxically, the government doesn't need to do it because everyone trusts each other and sort of shares the same goals. So Weirdly enough, there's this paradox, like in high trust societies, I'm actually more comfortable with government solutions um, as long as there's transparency. But I also am comfortable in saying there's less need for government solutions. <laughs> um, and so you need those solutions in the low trust societies, but you actually don't want those solutions in the <laughs> low trust societies because they're low trust societies and people are right to be like, wait a minute, if you're going to tax me and then spend my money in a certain way, I have a feeling you're going to be trying to teach my kids stuff I don't agree with, right? And that's exactly what we see. So, you know, I think there's the sort of meta point is in precisely those circumstances where we most, quote, need government to do something because it actually is a pretty big problem. Often those are the circumstances where the government solutions are worse than the problem they're trying to address. Um, so, okay, that's that's a meta point. But, <laughs> well, um, I think... I, I'm I'm curious to hear if you like what your take is on this, but I I kind of feel like like we've before we had not just a department of education because that's a mm -hmm. fairly recent phenomenon, but before we had any government like national standard for education or national education programs or anything like that, we had a very educated populace like colonial America like pre <laughs> pre revolutionary war we had like the literacy rates were really high and it wasn't just that people could read. They were like the Federalist Papers were published in just like the newspaper and people read them. And yeah. now that's like college level challenging reading for people. Right. And it was just like they assumed that this was going to convince the average American that they wanted to, you know, like that they should agree. Yeah. Um, 
So we had a very intelligent society and it was like a cultural thing. It wasn't a, mm-hmm. it enforced or mandated thing. And I think that, you know, to have, like, we have a government mandated education system now. It's abysmal. 50, I was, I tweeted this today, 54% of Americans read below a sixth grade level. That's a, a, a stat from the United States Department of Education, which is ridiculous. Right. So we have these standardized programs, but they're not doing a lot. But it's a, it's a value thing. It's not something that can be forced because we've tried to force and it's clearly not working. Right. But it's more of like a cultural osmosis kind of thing where if you have a culture that values being educated and values thinking and it being perhaps well-read or well-versed on a variety of topics, sort of like the 21st century Renaissance sort of character, like whatever the archetype becomes of what people admire and respect and look up to, to go back to your point of like modeling, um, like that, to me, that's the way to solve the problem. That's part of why I'm very excited about what the internet has done to intellectualism and how we have these internet celebrities who are not controlled by any gatekeepers. They're just famous because people find them interesting and they tend to be very well-read, very articulate, very intelligent, not even just raw intelligence, but in terms of like the muscle mass, metaphorically speaking, that they've built over time by being curious people. And if we have, like, to me, it's a cultural problem. Like solving education does not mean we have to go. Solving education is a very tall order, but you know what I mean? Like fixing some of these problems, it's not about mandating anything. It's about building a culture that values these things, which is a harder thing to do because it's yeah. harder to do top down. But I think, I think that's the only way to fix it. Yeah, that's, that sounds plausible to me. Um, yeah, and there's this concept of learned helplessness, you know, where, you know, essentially people don't, they haven't really thought these things through much. And of course, as you know, education in the United States and I guess most of the world now it is also de facto childcare. So we've got this like structural issue where we've got this norm now. There's nothing magical about it, but people work nine to five. You know, there's, why do we have to do that? I don't know. It's just an, an emergent order, right? It, it happens. Society builds itself around it. And it's like, now what do we do with the kids, right? And because of lots of structural things, both men and women are working for the most part. And so I think there's the shifting from that where it's like, what do we do with the kids all day? You know, sort of the schools as childcare to the also, well, I wouldn't even know how to teach my own kids because, well, I've never had any experience doing that. You know, so there's this kind of just, yeah, learned helplessness. Like, I don't know how else education would get done. Um, yeah, I think it would be pretty easy to solve the problem if we could all sort of move from one shelling point to another, you know, to use a game theory metaphor. But yeah, good luck doing that. So it's maybe like a lot of these things where we get locked into to a norm, you know, it requires some drastic shakeup. And then we're just like, ah, what do we do? And then some new norm emerges. And I guess the CRT stuff that people were learning about, uh, critical race theory, the kind of radicals in the classroom during COVID and people learning about it because of the kids learning at home and so on. Um, that's part of the story anyway. Presumably, some of that is getting people so angry that you know better than I do. There, there are more people taking homeschooling seriously. And maybe, maybe as that happens, it's kind of the way norms shift, whether it's norms of language use or customs or anything else. Once you hit certain thresholds and then influential people do it, then you just get like a landslide, right? And let's hope that's true. 
So yeah. What do you think? Well, COVID was definitely a major pattern interrupt. It was definitely people. And I think it was a pattern interrupt for a couple of reasons. One was because of, like you said, there was people saw what was happening in the classroom ideologically and they were very displeased. They also saw what was happening academically and they were like, I'm sorry, this is what my kid's doing all day. Like, this is ridiculous. But it also, it shifted the overturn window of acceptability because a lot of people, I talked to so many parents. I tell them, oh, I grew up homeschooled. Like, yeah, I, I could I could never have my kids home all day. That right, sounds right. terrible. Yeah. And then they, everybody had their kids home all day and they were like, wait a second, this actually isn't so, isn't so bad. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even that it's not so bad, but it's like culturally relatable. Because I think a lot of people have, it's really hard to be the one parent on your street who's sending your kid to like that weird hippie school or whatever when everybody else is in like the normal public school. And I think it just made it feel a little more acceptable that everybody could relate to the idea of not having their kids in public school because nobody did for a while. Yeah. So it's just not so weird anymore. But the homeschooling numbers skyrocketed and they've stayed They've stayed very high even post-COVID mm-hmm. and same with private school enrollment and like alternative school enrollment. A lot of the people that I know that are building innovative schools had a really big spike during COVID. Some of them have seen the numbers kind of like taper off again, but it's still much higher than it was pre-pandemic. And I think all of this, in my opinion, all of this was very inevitable, but COVID probably accelerated it by like as much as a decade. Um, and I don't know, do you feel like the same thing happened with colleges too. I feel like yeah, a lot sure. of people were also kind of disillusioned with the universities after yeah, the lockdowns. There, there are also other like exogenous shocks. So just, you know, some of which also are emergent orders too. So for example, um, we've been talking about this in universities for maybe a decade or more. Like administrators will kind of give us this talk, you know, when you, you're a faculty member at a new university, they'll be like, well, you know, just, just so you know, like around 2028, 2027, there's going to be this demographic cliff. Um, so there's going to be a lot fewer people applying to college. A lot of universities are going to shut down. I mean, the smaller ones anyway. And um, yeah, there's going to be some challenges there. So that's going to be one thing. And the other is like the male-female divide. So fewer men are going to universities and that's changing the dynamics of universities. So um, it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. It's not exactly the right way to put it, but um, the fewer men that are there, the fewer men want to go there. Okay, there are opportunities for more women. That's well, I was nice, going to say, but... does it also make it less interesting <laughs> to women as they're like in their 20s and they're like, well, I'm not going to meet any like potential mates or anything here. Yeah. That's kind of a waste of time. I don't know. That could happen and that could be good. And um, yeah, here's the controversial claim I'll make about this. Um, you know, there's pretty good data on this. Um, some of it just came out a couple of weeks ago that you know, in general, women, because they're a bit more caring, a bit more nurturing, at least on average, than men, um, when there are fewer and fewer men on the faculty, in the classrooms, et cetera, what you get is a lot more speech policing, a lot more, in fact, support for um, speech codes. It's much higher among women than men. And, um, and men are a little bit more disagreeable on average, which on you know, in many ways, it makes them less fun to be around because they can be kind of like annoying or something because they'll say something like, yeah, you really look like shit in that dress or whatever, right? <laughs> they'll tell you what you don't want to hear, but it might also be useful sometimes. And and so the more, the, the fewer men you have, the more the dynamics of learning change. Um, and I know a lot of people don't want to believe that, but it looks like the evidence is pretty clear on that in terms of, again the norms of discourse, supporting speech codes and that sort of thing. 
And yeah, I mean, it, it also maybe makes it more boring for the women because even if there's a slight difference in the averages, which is how these usually work, the macro pattern is a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, okay, maybe you don't want people yelling the N-word in class all the time or something. Like, okay, fine. But, but the result of the process that like, you know, weeds out all the controversial speech is that it's so fucking boring that nobody ever says anything. That's going to be, yeah, something men don't like and women probably don't like either. So maybe this is a good thing because fewer people in general will, will be interested in college. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm thinking now, I hadn't thought about this before, but I'm thinking about like the, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends and stuff in the rooms, like where the conversations with more men than women, the conversations yeah. do tend to be, like there's a different flavor to them. And sometimes the weird questions get asked there that don't get asked in the rooms that are a little more balanced. Yeah. Not in like, you know, just like being less afraid of offending people. Right. And that's important. Like that conversations like that make you think about things. They, they challenge you intellectually. So it makes sense. That's a really interesting yeah, thing and maybe- to consider. Maybe it's sort of like in some environments having, you know, predominance of women is better, like the environment in which you're trying to come to a peace treaty or something like that, right? But if you're in a philosophy class, you know, and the issue is whether God exists or free will is an illusion or whatever the issue is, like, yeah, I mean, you know, other than like yelling obscenities, like, yeah, okay, that's not productive, but like, you want all the issues on the table. You know, you want people to argue hard for them. And um, yeah, that's not happening as much either. Actually, I wasn't going to say this, but I'll mention it. Um, we talked about like literature and some of the grievance studies departments. Well, philosophy, which is like my main discipline, has become more of a grievance studies department. When you actually look at the offerings, it used to be like boring, but interesting to me, like epistemology, right? Theory of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And like what, what kinds of arguments could, you know, could be mustered in favor of different views? Um, metaphysics, logic, you know, those were the big ones, right? Or the big, you know, ethical theory classes. Like, is there any objective truth and how would we know it if we saw it and blah, blah, blah. Or some of the practical ethics classes where you put everything on the table, you know, like obviously abortion and euthanasia and people even argue like you have an obligation to die in certain circumstances, right? Not even just a right, but like, yeah, you should kill yourself. You know, Like everything used to be on the table even 20 years ago, and it should be. That's the point of philosophy. But philosophy looks a lot more like social justice now. So when you look at the offerings, like what are the actual classes offered? And a lot of them are like oppression, you know, there are even things about, you know, white supremacy and systemic, institutional, whatever. And when you look at the contents of those classes, you can imagine they reflect the titles, right? I mean, they're not going to give you a survey of the evidence. Like, is there evidence that there's like a police bias against, against black people? And it turns out that's like a heavily disputed question. Like there are a lot of people who are like, actually, there's no evidence for it. And some think there is, and, you know, maybe there is, maybe there's not. But like, in a philosophy class, you would think that's the one where you would, you know, you'd go, let's look at all sides of this because I don't know is the right answer. Oh, no. Like if you were to ask the skeptical question and be like, I don't think there actually is police bias and here's why, you'd be shouted out of the room now, right? So think about that. I mean, that's, that's really incredible. Like the, you know, you might call it like the crown jewel of wisdom, you know, philosophy, the, the, the class that you're more than any other, way more than the sciences allowed to ask any questions that's gone the direction of, um, yeah, of the grievance studies departments too. That's wild to think about the secondary impacts of that yeah. on people's ability to think. So 
if people want to learn how to think well, sounds like college is not the place for you to go. No. <laughs> what, what would you recommend for a person who is intellectually curious? Because like, we know a lot of people who are full-time sub-stackers or full-time podcasters. I mean, that's what, what I do. I talk mm-hmm. about ideas all day. I'm not college educated. I'm just like learning as I go. And I think there's interesting arguments to make that maybe we can get into a little bit about like some of the benefits that this type of path has that the traditional university path couldn't offer. But like, what should people do if they're interested in this stuff and college is kind of a a dead end for this now? Yeah, that's it. So obviously podcasts, Substack, there are these alternative platforms and you know, we had talked about earlier, like, okay, what's the problem? You know, what's the problem? Diagnose that. What's the solution? And you mentioned sort of vaguely internet stuff. And now this is like more specific. But yeah, the 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 biggest thing that we could do in general as a society to improve things is free up the internet. Like to me, that's the single most important thing in any election right now is like, can someone credibly promise to in some way, I know there's lots of dispute about how we do it, you know, revised section 230 or whatever it is. But unless we have the ability to openly, freely express different views outside of the academy, because it's not happening there, like we really are kind of doomed, right? And where do you do it right now? Yeah, sometimes it's on YouTube, although people are getting censored, Substack for sure, podcasts. But I would say the only other like non-obvious thing is read old, great books. Um, a lot of them are actually pretty boring. But a lot of them are no, pretty good not. too. <laughs> they're a lot great. of them are good too. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, like I've forced myself to reread things usually when I have to teach them again. But you know, hopefully now that I'm becoming more of a civilian, I'll do it on my own. But like rereading Plato's Republic, I mean, it's nothing but hate speech. <laughs> you know, it's just I, I'm shocked that it's not been banned actually in a lot of universities. It just explicitly advocates like all the ideas that the wokists are against. Like Plato says at one point, like, you know, basically there's natural slavery, you know, like Aristotle definitely believed that. And Plato kind of hints at it. Um, you know, Greece is for the Greeks and not for the immigrants. You know, he's <laughs> like um, eugenic utopia. He's like the, the inferior people should have no children. The superior should have all the children. He just says it, you know, and it's like, um, you know, whatever you make of those ideas, there's a thousand, 10,000 different ideas, good and bad. I mean, he advocates a massive censorship regime, which, you know, also I disagree with, but he has these really interesting reasons why we should censor the poets and the musicians and the state should control who's... And even the advocates of censorship now don't have like the sophisticated reasons that Plato did for like advocating censorship or the people who whatever, oppose all the other ideas that I express. Like, so, I mean, just going through smart, dead, literary people. So whether it's like writers, philosophers, et cetera, and just reading them carefully, I actually think you get a better education than almost any other, any other manner. So Nietzsche, Plato, people like this. I mean, part of the point was to express ideas that were unpopular. Um, yeah. Is that actually a sufficient replacement for what college was supposed to be because there are elements that are missing like you're not getting you're not having your ideas challenged by someone who like a veteran who's been doing this for a while you're not having the discussion with your peers you have to create that on your own somehow 
which I personally believe you can do, but I also am, again, like fairly radical in my takes on some of this. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the problem. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm ambivalent about this. On the one hand, there, there are people who are interested in all this stuff who will do things like reading groups, um, which, which helps, right? So you read on your own, that's great. Reading group, even better, right? Because you can disagree with each other and that sort of thing. And it's a high trust environment because, you know, it's 10 people or whatever voluntarily coming together. So you're not going to be like, you're a racist or whatever. I'm going to get you canceled. Like, no, you're just like, if you don't like someone, like, I don't know, don't invite them to the reading group again or something. But, <laughs> you know, there's no like denunciations and public displays of your vir virtue and that sort of thing. So I think that's good. It can't replace even close to what college can do at its best. Universities can do at their best where you've got 50 people, you know, I'm, I've probably taught four or 5,000 students and, um, you know, I did my best. It's not so, not so much about objectivity, although I tried to do that, but more just like exposing them to radically different views and seriously, like really taking them seriously and like having people hash it out. And I mean, I have no doubt. I'm under no illusions. Like I saw the spark in people's eyes. I had the hundreds of letters after classes were over saying exactly what they learned and exactly why they valued those classes. So you know, I'm not like, oh, I'm some amazing teacher or something. No, like, but it, it was real. It happened. Like, you know, students would say like what they got out of, you know, these very public vehement disagreements or being forced to write a paper where they justify a view precisely because they disagree with it, which I would often do. Um, very hard to do that outside of that structured environment. On the other hand, Maybe the one thing to say in favor of the voluntary, the reading groups and the podcasts and all of that is a lot of people in universities are not interested in thinking for themselves. And um, you learn that pretty quickly too. Like I thought I could really like show everyone like, no, it's cool to read Nietzsche. It's fun and interesting. Actually, most people don't care. So like you, you do learn that too with students. And so maybe there is an opportunity class, uh, sorry, opportunity cost to taking normies, let's call them, forcing them into philosophy and literature classes they don't want to take. Um, maybe it's better to just like let their interest emerge if it ever does. And if it doesn't, who cares? So we can replace some of what college does with these kinds of private interactions. And what we can't do, maybe we should just throw our hands up and say, eh, that's human nature. For the people who are innately curious in this kind of thing, is there anything and they're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to college or I never went to college or maybe I did. And I feel like I got a very unsatisfactory experience and I want to like challenge myself to go learn some of this stuff. Are there either particular things that you would recommend they read beyond just like the Western canon, generally speaking, or are there other things that you would challenge them to do? Like make sure you're writing about what you're reading or make sure you're mm finding people to debate these things with or like what are there anything in particular that you think generally speaking is helpful I'll, I'll ask your view on this because I think you probably have some views worth hearing on this because you made a couple of good suggestions yeah finding finding kind of not really debate partners you can't really say hey I challenge you to a debate publicly or something be cool Doesn't if really, you could yeah exactly <laughs> start a podcast make that the theme that's true I mean in a way that is a debate and having you might say adversarial conversations too like not only inviting people you agree with on a podcast or not only listening to people you agree with. It's good advice, hard to actually follow. Like I barely follow it myself. I mean, to be honest, you know, to like how much do I listen to people I vehemently disagree with? But 
yeah, so I'd be interested in your views. Um, but I think one other thing that people don't do enough of that maybe I you know, did a lot of and really enjoyed and appreciated is popular science. It's hard for people to distinguish like the charlatans like Malcolm Gladwell, who just writes things that people wants to hear from the really interesting scientists who just happen to be good writers. And I'll give examples of that. So Malcolm Gladwell, bad. Um, Matt Ridley, good. Um, you know, uh, Dawkins, even though I disagree with his gene-centered view of biology, I think he's wrong about that. Man, is he a good writer and is he really, really interesting, right? So reading people like that or like a, a really good book that caught my my eye in the 90s, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which was written by a philosopher, but on like the implications of Darwinism as a historical matter, like when people realize like this is probably true, it really changed their view of like meaning in life, of like how we got here and what human nature looks like. And so when you, and, and then what are the philosophical implications, right? So when you, when you engage with books like that, that can really change your worldview and are written by smart people who don't condescend and just give you a bunch of anecdotes and stuff that you want to hear, I think that's really important too. So not just like classics, don't just like read Dickens and Plato or something, but read like really good, well-written, popular science. Um, not the kind that the New York Times or New Yorker is going to be like, this is cool because it promotes the ideology, but just like genuinely interesting people from different sciences. Another good one is like Nick Lane, who studied the evolution of mitochondria. It's like, well, who cares about mitochondria? But it's like, dude, it happened once in 4 billion years. Like one bacterium was gobbled up by another and that basically created all of complex life, made sex necessary and made death almost inevitable. And it's like, whoa, how the fuck did that happen? Like, you know, where you can get you know, someone who's super smart talking about one or two big ideas and how it just like changed the trajectory of evolution or change what we think of as the implications for like the meaning of life and that sort of thing. So that's my other. I think the the point that you made about things that are just interesting is also important to tease out because there's like a sort of a standard canon of things that are considered to be useful to study. But I think it's mm. also very important one, it's hard to read a lot of things, especially if you're not like in the small subset of very nerdy people who just want to spend a Friday night doing that. Yeah. Like, for most people, it is effort, at least until you've built the muscle and you've built the, the like, it just becomes normal for you. But if you're chasing things that are interesting to you, um, I talk about this a lot because I feel like this is a really, this has been a key part of like my own experience evolving, but I also think it's really true for education in general and people in general. It's like when you're curious about stuff, just go follow that because usually the things you're curious about interrelate and they also tend to come back because there's something in you that makes all these things that you're curious about make sense. That's right. And most of the people who I would consider to be very smart and I respect very much have some really weird nerdy interests that aren't just like sort of the standard mainstream. If you're interested intellectually, go study these things. Right. But the fact that they have these weird tangential interests is part of what gives them a unique perspective on the world. Like it's not just that they're learning how to think because they've like read some economics and some political philosophy and they kind of understand how the world works, but they have, they're able to synthesize unique ideas because they're connecting types of things that most people 
aren't. Mm. And so if you're following the things that you personally are really curious about, you can not only use that as a mechanism for expanding intellectually, because as long as you're grappling with ideas that are like relatively challenging, you're learning and you're building your capacity, but you're actually giving yourself an advantage because you're learning a lot of things that don't normally go together. So you might draw conclusions that other people aren't seeing. Yep. Or you might be drawing the same conclusions but be able to describe them in a different way that makes your take interesting. And generally it's useful to have interesting takes. Um, and it makes you more fun at parties. That is what leads you to meet interesting people, which leads to like actual interesting real life opportunities. It's not just like a flex. Um, so I think that's really important. And I also think like it's very easy. I think there's, we're so saturated in just like productivity advice around how to be a better person. And so much of it is just like, you know, you have to have X amount of books on your reading list for the year. And as long as you've checked them off the list, it's you're good. But there's a difference between going through the motions of reading all the words on the page and like not just being able to like from a literacy standpoint, like being able to comprehend what you're reading, but from an actual experiential standpoint, being able to read something and grapple with the ideas and know what you think about them and if you agree or disagree or what else they relate to from other things you've read or other questions you have or what you want to know next. So like... I hesitate to just tell people to read more. Like, I think that is the correct, totally, that is the yeah. correct advice for sure. But it's not just about like, go read a bunch of classics and then say you read them and have yeah. them on your bookshelf to show people when they come over. Like, look, I read some Plato. But Maybe you're, you're in the interest point. I mean, on the one hand, it could sound trade. Oh, do, you know, follow your passions or whatever. But it's an interesting point because um, one way to think about it too is let's say like you're, 20 and you're really interested in like just dating, you know, maybe you're, yeah, an insecure young guy or something. And, you know, how do I get a date? You know, it's, you know, what do, what do people think about when they're 20 or something? And, and, um, okay. If that's, what's motivating them, I mean, among other things, actually, I would say, you know, don't read some like pickup artistry, go read actually some evolutionary biology, <laughs> go read, you know, Jeffrey Miller's The Mating Mind or something like this on like, you know, because then you're also, you're not only going to learn like, what do women actually like in men, but why they do and why we evolve the way we do to display in various ways and stuff. And it's so you can take these like base interests that we all have and weirdly turn them into intellectual interests. And um, that'll make you like, yeah, you'll you'll have a reason to pursue these things, but also make you a more interesting person. So Yeah, and there's there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with that too. I mean, like that's kind of what Chris Williamson's podcast brand is about now. Like he talks about a lot of that stuff really consistently. He found a niche that he was interested in mm. and he's got, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of YouTube subscribers at this point, but it's a lot of them. Like the, with the following the curious, like not everybody who's interested in this stuff is going to go build a huge podcast, but the point is that there's a lot that you can follow that follows from following these things that you're interested in. Yeah. And so finding the intersection of those things, plus like the actual practical reality that you're in mm -hmm. and then chasing those interests and then doing things to actually make sure that you're grappling with the information. You're challenging yourself to go into a room with people who don't all agree with you and you hear their takes and you either counter them or you at least ask them thoughtful questions to better understand if you're not very disagreeable. Like, well, why do you think that? And then in your head, you're like, well, I don't know if I agree with this because of this thing, but I'm going to ask a follow-up question about it. Um, like even that, most people don't do that. Yeah. 
So even that is like pushing you to develop intellectually. What about like, so you know a lot of people who are internet creators or like internet intellectuals. I don't know what the real term is, but that's what I call them. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the difference that you see in like, and, and I'm not talking about like, you know, anybody specific, but just as like a general phenomenon of intellectualism. Like what are the the gaps that tend to emerge when you're talking on the internet? Like there's an argument to be made that your work is being peer reviewed because like, do people want to pay for a Substack subscription or do they not? Are they finding this interesting or don't they? Are people agreeing with you on Twitter? Or are they tearing your takes up? But it's not the same type of peer review as writing an academic paper and having other academics reviewing it. And I think there's, especially with all of the ideological stuff that's happening in universities, like, you know, what's ha the, the type of peer review that you're getting may or may not even be valuable. I'm curious yeah. to hear your take on that too. But like, what, what are the, the unexpected or maybe obvious pitfalls of being an intellectual on the internet in terms of just like things that are missing? Yeah, I mean, a good case study is probably Ayla um, because she's kind of gained a bit of fame of late, you know, for mm -hmm. her, her Twitter polls and that sort of thing. And then these, you know, academics will snap back, oh, that's not real science, you know, it's an unrepresentative poll. And she'll be like, well, it's, yeah, but it's pretty big and pretty big sample and <laughs> I have diverse followers. And yeah, I mean, the truth is like, look, when academics aren't doing their jobs, you should expect Twitter celebrities to emerge. And that's not bad. Like actually, Ayla is doing some pretty interesting work and I think she's going to publish it. But I would also say in an ideal world, you know, academics would be doing what she's doing and in a better way. And yeah, when there's not so much ideology, peer review actually is pretty valuable. So and I mean, one reason is like, again, when it's working well, which it's not now, um, you can get very different perspectives. So normally when you write a book or, or an article, you'll have say three or even four peer reviewers. And if it's, you know, a random sample of people, some of them at least are going to disagree with the conclusion or at least want to ask the right questions. Like, are you sure that was, you know, that study had, you know, a, you know, a good sample, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, in principle, those are actually really good safeguards for doing good science. But in reality, and, and, and another problem, of course, with, let's say, internet science, so to speak, which Razib also does, Razib Khan, very well. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, a big problem is you, you not only don't get the pushback, the forced pushback of having to go through peer review, you also tend to get self-selection biases, right? So the kinds of people who are interested in the kinds of conclusions you come to are more likely to be your followers. You'll still get pushback on the internet, but maybe not the right kind or quantity as you would in peer review. But again, we live in an imperfect world. So I would not recommend peer review as an alternative because when you look at philosophy now, um, well, I'm one of maybe five or 10 people who are, you might call us dissident philosophers who managed to keep our jobs for a while anyway. Um, who were able to publish things that did not come to the approved conclusions. Now, we often were peer reviewing each other's papers, though, you know, so often what was happening is we'd, we'd get rejected from different journals for ideological reasons. And then one of us would get to peer review someone else's, and we knew who wrote it, you know, or so we're part of the, the same problem in a way. 
But um, yeah, anyway, so, so the problem is like peer review as it is now is terrible. There are better versions of it though. Um, there's the whole open science movement where you make your data sets public, you make it clear exactly what your methods were. Um, it's all publicly available. And so other people can sort of see how you got to your conclusions and how you gathered your data and what your initial hypothesis was because you wrote it down ahead of time. Not just what did you come to after, you know, you interpreted patterns maybe falsely. So I actually think peer review, you know, there's a place for it and it, it can actually done quite well in an open science environment. Um, yeah. What? So there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of buzz in the alternative education conversation about critical thinking. It's a real buzz term. Um, and it's often poorly defined. Um, I, I use it all the time, too, because it's evocative of a whole yeah. subset of ideas that are very important. But it's not always a very well-defined concept. And it's often very... It gets a lot of pushback, too. A lot of people don't like it, which I find very interesting. Um, they don't like critical thinking or they don't like the idea of critical thinking. Well, they don't like it for a variety of reasons. I think a lot of people just think it's like a fluff term. Yeah. Um, or not a very good argument. But there's also a whole subset of people. I don't know if this is a rabbit hole worth going down or not. If you have thoughts and response to this, we absolutely can. But a lot of people, you know, like we a lot of people talk about the importance of teaching kids how to think, not what to think. And then there's a whole sure. subset of people are like, no, it's really important to give them building blocks for thought first. There's a lot of very heated debates that happen down some rabbit holes of Twitter about this. Mm. Um, there's a very open-ended question, but I'm curious about your take about the idea of critical thinking, broadly speaking, like what it means, what, what a good version of it is and what, what sure. cultivating it looks like. As, as a philosopher who would have probably opinions on this. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, we're supposed to be the critical thinking subject, right? So, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living is the, the, the Socrates quote. So yeah, in principle, that's what philosophy is. But the reality is like good science also, like what Kuhn called revolutionary science when you're actually like changing paradigms, like, you know, is the germ theory of disease true or not, right? Um, given the evidence, or does this vaccine work or not? You actually do need to, you know, think critically in the sense of there are several hypotheses compatible with the observations we've made. And now we have to decide which one is probably right. One of them might be simpler. One might have more explanatory or predictive power or accord better with other things we know in other adjacent disciplines, whatever. So I think like whenever we're doing things well, we're critically thinking like day-to-day -day science where you're just like writing down numbers, like, I don't know, you're tracking like the growth of a bacterium or something. Obviously that's not critical thinking, but you know, like re the really interesting parts of any aspect of life require critical thinking and, and, and judgment. So what is it? It's basically being able to figure out what a good justification is for your belief. It's not you know, what you believe, but how you came to that conclusion. And there are better and worse ways of doing that. So obviously you can have good reasons for false beliefs and bad reasons for true beliefs. Why? Because, you know, some God just implanted a true belief in your head or you happen to hear someone say it and you repeated it, but you have no idea why you believed it, right? So um, 
yeah, critical thinking to me is is pretty fairly straightforward, actually. It's just about improving the quality of justification for a belief. How do you do that? There's lots of ways, of course, and studying logic might be one way to do it. Studying math might be a way to do it, but also just like cultivating the virtue of wisdom, which is to say, um, not being afraid to say you don't know, um, actively seeking out alternative views, et cetera. So some of that's a little bit sort of trite. Like it sounds like, well, of course, yeah, that's what, it, but that's really what critical thinking is. I guess maybe also people are starting to use it, you know, to mean critical, like critical race theory and critical, the, the, the word critical is this weird Marxist term from the 1950s. And that doesn't help because that's like indoctrination stuff. But yeah. I feel like there's also a counter side too, where like critical also implies uh, like the left doesn't like it either because it sort of implies being too, I don't know, overly, overly critical of different types of people that we're not supposed to be critical of too. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. So. I, there, there's some weird stuff that happens down some <laughs> yeah. rabbit holes of Twitter. You get into all kinds of strange debates with yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so I could, I could keep asking you questions for a very long time, but I want to yeah, be respectful okay. of your time. Yeah, um, if people enjoyed this interview, where can they find you? Where would you send them next? Well, I guess my website. So I've got all my, all my papers and stuff on, on the website, but um, yeah. Yeah, there. I, I'm not, I'm self-consciously not online at all. Well, okay, other than a website, no social media. I've got my Twitter burner account, so maybe I'm following you, maybe not. Who knows? But um, yeah, I've had too many academic friends either literally get fired or get into trouble, which eventually led to them getting fired for comments they made on social media. So yeah, but you're leaving academia. Right? I know. So maybe I'll start an account now. Yeah, yeah. We'll we see. We got to fix this problem. Sounds good. <laughs> um, cool. Your website, I'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to this. Thanks, it's been yeah, fun. Absolutely. Thanks. You've been listening to the Hannah Franklin Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating. Please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let me know what you think. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week, friends.